In a world where everything keeps changing, your stores provide delicious, craveable consistency. At the National Restaurant Association show, you'll find what you need to keep your operations efficient and adapt to new customer expectations. Join us for data-backed industry projections, sessions focused on financial fluency, deep dives into restaurant technology, and more. Save over $60 when you register with code RBDAILY by November 23rd at nationalrestaurantshow.com. What do we make of Inspire Brand's $11.3 billion deal for Duncan? Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Peter Romeo, Editor-at-Large at Restaurant Business. We try to make sense of a crazy few days in the restaurant industry. That includes this Friday night deal between Inspire and Duncan. In just a few short years, Inspire has become a force in the industry, one willing to gobble up one of the industry's biggest operators in Duncan. We also talk about some smaller deals, including the bankruptcy filing this week by Friendly's and the sale of Corner Bakery to the owner of Boston Market. Please have a listen. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about Duncan, sir. Um, last, um, uh, on Friday, uh, Duncan Brands agreed to an $11.3 billion deal with uh, Inspire Brands and um biggest deal in six years uh what is paul brown creating down there in atlanta i think paul brown is creating the next force in our industry uh and really the question or why uh my appetite for watching this unfold is is just so intense is to see what he does with it um uh, you know, he's amassed a really interesting collection of brands, some that are real repair projects, some that had promise that just needed some love, uh, some that had just kind of rested on their laurels. And now in the middle of it, he drops this huge operation, uh, an operation that consists uh, totally of franchises, probably uh, a significant number of whom do not have a sandwich franchise like an Arby's or uh, a delivery, strong delivery capability on par with Jimmy John's or some of the promotional savvy that uh, Buffalo Wild Wings has. So when you step back and you look at it from a holistic standpoint, it's less a matter of plugging a hole and inspires uh, portfolio and more a matter of adding to sort of the capabilities and the potential participants they have. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it was a hell of a deal, a really bold deal. I mean, I remember when uh, Rourke bought Carvel and everyone was thinking, oh my God, what are these guys going to do? Uh, and now they're buying an $11.3 billion operation through Inspire. That that says a lot. Um, uh, you know, it's interesting when that headline moved, when I, I got your news blast on Friday night, it brought to mind the last time that Duncan went through this when it was acquired by um, some private equity companies. And that was really, in my mind, the start of the big brands being acquired by the PEs. You know, around the same time, we had uh, what's now Bloomin' Brands. They... Uh, they uh, becoming going private. So 
that 11.3 sounds like a staggering number right now. Um, but in a year's hence, we might look at that as a bargain. So it'll be very interesting to watch this one for sure. Yeah. So one of the things I was looking, I was looking at their valuation numbers and for all intents and purposes, um, uh, inspire God, Duncan, you know, I mean, they paid, you know, they, they, they paid basically, they paid a, a high price. Um, the, the, but it's probably not like, so if you look at what they're expected EBITDA this year is it would, it, you know, the, the price, the valuation multiple is somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 times, um, 2000 EBITDA, which is insane, which is an insane, mm-hmm. number. um, probably, which would arguably be one of the highest valuations ever paid for a restaurant, if not the highest, mm-hmm. um, certainly for a large scale restaurant like this. Um, but that valuation is probably inflated, uh, given that Duncan, um, you know, Duncan's earnings this year are down because of the COVID. Um, so in some respects, yeah, they, I mean, they absolutely did. Um, they absolutely paid a, a high price, but it's probably not as high as it might appear, mm-hmm. um, given, given sort of the depressed earnings this year, but still it's, it's a real interesting, um, a real interesting deal. And one to me that, you know, it's, you know, Duncan, of all of these companies that are acquirable, um, certainly in the top 10, they have more, they have as much growth potential as anybody else out there, um, given that they can go, you know, they can grow domestically, they can grow internationally. I mean, they have an inter- certainly an international uh, presence, but not nearly as, as strong as many other companies. Um, so, you know, I mean, they're, they're paying for the right to continue to benefit from, from that long-term growth. So pretty good deal for these guys. Oh, no doubt about it. You know, we, uh, uh, me coming from the East coast, Duncan was part of my heritage. Uh, but when I go visit my sister in California, I'm struck by, uh, the lack of a brand here that you couldn't toss a rock without hitting a, a unit here. So I agree with you with the, um, the expansion potential. You know, if there was one stat that I wish I could see uh, in the due diligence uh, materials, it would be how many franchisees Duncan has and how that enlarges the field of franchisees that are involved in his brands. Mm-hmm. That's got to be a huge number. And so for cross-franchising purposes, and we've seen some some wonderful disasters of fr- cross-franchising in the past, but if Inspire can do it right and the crossovers make sense, that really opens up a lot of long-term growth for the brands that they current currently have. And it, when you think about bringing in a, a promising small brand, having that ready-made market to sell franchises too, Mm-hmm. That's pretty intriguing. That, that's a very interesting uh, uh, business model to consider. Um, and it kind of fits with Inspire's promise to think differently. They're not just thinking of, you know, do I have a pizza brand? Do I have a burger brand? Do I have a sandwich brand, et cetera? They're thinking, what franchisees do I have and what growth opportunities does that afford as we acquire more brands? So it's it's a very, very intriguing situation for sure. Right. Yeah. So let me throw this one out there for you. So um, obviously, I don't think Inspire is done buying. I mean, they might take a break after this, but come on. Um, You know, they've said as many, what, 10 acquisitions 
So by my count, they still have two, three more at least mm -hmm. uh, to go. I mean, this will be, they'll have seven brands. So they, they still got some more to do. So uh, let me run this one past you. Certain pizza chain mm -hmm. uh, is in the process of moving to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And uh, is, you know, as uh, uh, happens to be run by uh, a person who uh, worked for Paul Brown. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, uh, actually had come from Inspire Brands before then. Uh, and also, there is this little fact that we do know that Roar Capital was interested in this particular soon-to-be Atlanta-based pizza concept mm -hmm. uh, before um, ultimately the company decided to um, uh, decided to take the money from Starboard and 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 fix itself now. Um, so just throwing that out there that that it would the one the one deal on this planet that I almost expect at this point is that down the road at some point inspire buys Papa John's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that that is quite feasible. And there are some other factors that come into play. Um, not only did uh, Rob Lynch work for Paul Brown, but they were friends. I mean, mm -hmm. they were true. Uh, they they had true affection for each other and. And I know through a mutual friend that when it came time for Rob to alert Paul to uh, uh, his pending move, uh, he was just consumed with anxiety because because of the respect he had for Paul and the respect that Paul had for him. It was a very uh, an emotional thing. So there's that glue there too. Uh, and, uh, I, I think given Papa John's franchisees mu must be ecstatic right now, given the numbers, but wasn't that long ago that they were really upset with that company and moving to a brand that wears the whitest of white hats with or the, the operation with inspire, that's gotta be a reassurance as well. So I don't think that's so out there at all. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what kind of multiples they can get for that though. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, uh, I, you know, that's, that's, that's going to be, be interesting to see. I mean, certainly Papa John's valuation is really soared. Uh, I don't think any company has completely reversed its fortunes during the pandemic quite the way that, uh, Papa John's has. I don't think, I don't think I can think of any, um, even close. Uh, I mean, maybe a few, might have, uh, I mean, certainly a few companies probably avoided bankruptcy, um, sort of like checkers and rallies and companies of that nature. Um, but, you know, Papa John's was in deep trouble, um, actually started to come out of it. And then during the, you know, and then during the pandemic, just things just surged. So, um, you know, they'd, they'd be at a much higher price than they would have been if, if work had, had tried taking, if work was able to, to buy them before. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, it, a pizza concept really is kind of got to be at the top of their their shopping list because look at the the acumen that they would that they inspire would bring to it. Um, delivery, you know, they they have a, a deep understanding of that. The promotional uh, back and forth that's so typical of the pizza sector. Yeah, they've they've got their feet wet in that with um, what they've done with Buffalo Wild Wings, a largely promotional driven brand. Uh, and, uh, in terms of taking a brand that still needs some, some renovations, some updating, uh, as they did with Arby's, some, perhaps some streamlining at the operational level at the unit level, 
they've got that as well. So it, there are there are a lot of uh, things that check uh, the box is checked in a lot of ways. So uh, mm -hmm. so it it will be very very interesting to see. Right, let me um let me ask you this question. So speaking of chains that uh, probably need a little bit of help, uh, friendlies. Oh. Um, as we uh, friendlies has uh, filed for filed for uh, its second go round of uh, chapter 11, making it a chapter 22. Um, it is down to 130 locations. Um, they said nearly all of them will remain open, which suggests to me that they're going to be closing even for more locations than they've closed. So and um, got purchased for the. Uh, obscenely low price of just less than ten million dollars, a two million dollars, and um, and on top of that, Sun Capital basically just waived off whatever debt the company held. Right. In essence, Sun Capital said, "We're going to take a loss here. We're going to give you something. We're going to give you some money, uh, essentially, to take this off our hands." Mm -hmm. And it's easy to understand why that is. Um, so, friendlies. It, which I'm very, very familiar with. Um, my mother grew up in the town that was one of the first in Massachusetts to have a friendlies. And so growing up, that was always the place to go for a celebration or after the beach or th something like that. Um, and it was interwoven. It was a part of our, our lives. It was part of the social fabric up there. Uh, as at the time was Penguin Burgers, another killer brand that might not be with us anymore. Uh, and a couple others of that ilk. Um, the, the, the problem was it was a concept of its time. And it was brilliant in that regard in terms of how it operated, the whole notion of come for a Sunday, have a fribble, uh, or if you want a burger, we got that too. Uh, it, it just was perfectly suited to its market in terms of the price, the menu, even how they operated. They had a very pioneering operational style where the kitchen was in the center of the restaurant and around it were the booths and the notion was that the server would take your order give it to the cook when the cook was done the server would just walk across the kitchen and put it down uh on your table uh without ever even leaving that kitchen area so so it did a lot of innovative stuff but the problem is it just stopped and it stopped maybe 30 years ago uh, I remember when John McGuire came in as CEO after uh, the Blakes um, uh, or the, the elder Blake decided that uh, things were not going well or he didn't like the direction of the company under the cele then celebrated operator Don Smith. Uh, and he brought in uh, John McGuire was brought in to, to uh, fix it. He was talking about how many menu items that they had. I believe, if I recall correctly, they had over 120. And yet something like 80% of their sales came from 16 items. So it, it just was a glaring example of how inertia can really, really stifle a brand. So you look at it now and you look at where it is. Um, the curbside appeal is not great. The buildings look like something from the 60s. Uh, they're the closest living thing we have to the old Howard Johnson, probably. Uh, the menu is is fine, but it's not distinctive. Uh, the fribble will only take you so far. Their burgers will only take you so far. 
you've got the ice cream, but certainly there's no shortage of players out there. And the whole super premium movement came and has become part of the background. And Friendly's was never really part of that. Their ice cream is good, but it's not up there with some of the newer, fresher brands that we see. Um, plus, you can get it in the uh, the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's got a long way to go. It's got a tremendous repair piece of repair work ahead of uh, ahead of it. And and I agree with you. We're going to see more uh, stores closing, not just because of the viability of the concept, but it is a mature concept. So a lot of its real estate is probably either owned or uh, on very attractive lease terms that could be more valuable uh, as something sold than as the location of a restaurant. So um, so they really have their work cut out for them uh, in so many regards, uh, and hence the, the price, which it was just, that was one where you wanted to make sure it wasn't a typo, that there weren't a couple zeros <laughs> missing. But uh, but sadly, that's that's not the case. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see if there's any crossover from one concept to the other. The new buyers are also the, the parent of uh, Boston Market. Um, so, um, you know, they, they've got that potential brand to bring in there. But of course, that has its own problems. I, I if If they were to think about converting Boston markets into friendlies, I think we might have to mount an intervention. Um, but to see if there's anything that they can steal from one another. Uh, but I, I, I'm not betting, I'm not betting the retirement fund on, on friendlies comeback now. Just to, just to clear that out, Boston market bought corner bakery. I'm sorry. It was red mango. So it's the red mango owners that bought friendlies. Oh, okay. And, okay. My mistake. My mistake. No, and um uh the red mango owners bought bought friendlies, um, Bricks Holdings. That's uh, I mean, correct. I mean, the corner bakery Boston market deal is another one. Yeah. Um, to talk about. But the the friendlies deal to me, and I I think that it's a perfect example of a company. I mean, it's it's why this industry, like why you have so many of these old chains that just continue to hold on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever again over and just, and, and, you know, you, at some point, I think a restaurant chain sort of loses its luster and then you have the success of a buy, succession of buyers that don't really want to invest in it. Um, and then just basically keep it operating uh, to, to take whatever cash they can get out of the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that, um, I mean, it's just indicative of of sort of how this industry operates. That basically, it's essentially it was just it was basically given away. Mm-hmm. You know, the two million amounts to be. You know, I mean, that's that's all going to some unsecured creditors, basically. Right. And um, uh, you know, so you know, Sun is just ba- is just leaving. We've seen this a few times mm-hmm. with restaurant chains. You know, certainly some of these problem problem concepts where the rest where the private equity owner just basically walks away. Mm. And, um, you know, I mean, not all of these have been ended up in bankruptcy. I mean, I think the corner bakery deal, um, is kind of one of them. I don't think that that was sold for any substantial amount. Same thing with Boston market, you know, you know, and both of these chains were having problems going into the pandemic. Um, and, uh, but friendlies is it, it's just, um, I mean, it's, you know, they've just been, it's, they've been a, a, they've been. You know, they were a problem, I think, back when they went private back when it was 06 and 07. Yeah. yeah. And, um, 
you know, and then they've ended up in bankruptcy within a few years and then they've just been in decline since. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that might not be top of mind uh, for most observers, but really uh, stands out in the head of an old dog like me is that uh, the whole situation with friendlies kind of disproves the notion of incoming CEO as Superman. Um, friendly, when it was still friendly, uh, without the apostrophe S, uh, was acquired by a guy named Don Smith. And Don Smith, uh, and, and this is mean not meant to show any disrespect to Brian Nickel, but he was kind of the Brian Nickel of his time and that he had uh, done some big things. Uh, he had put Pizza Hut on the map. He had really pushed the personal pan pizza. And he seemed to have the, the Midas touch. He had a lot of Burger Kings. Uh, he, he started building a, a collection of brands that was sort of a junior inspire for its time. And when he purchased Friendly's, or friendly, there was a lot of head shaking of, gosh, you know, what is he thinking? And and he was very cocky about it, about how he was going to turn it around. And of course, one of his big moves was to buy Friendly's rival in New England, Perkins, and to try to make it one company. And it, it was just a mess. Uh, and he never really recovered. Uh, the company never really recovered. So you could be the smartest executive in the world, but sometimes the hand you're dealt, there's no way you could play it for a win. Uh, so it's a cautionary tale uh, today when we see so many brands go from zero to 60 in no time and are hailed as the, the next big thing. A lot of times it's temporarily the next big thing. Right. Um, Corner Bakery is a, a very different uh, type of concept from Friendly's. Uh, mm -hmm. In that it is, it is not the legacy chain that that Friendlies is. In fact, it was not that long ago considered sort of this up and coming bakery cafe concept. I mean, it wasn't certainly going into the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, but you know, it's you know, it didn't go bankrupt. You know, let's make that clear. But it was sold. Um, you know, it was sold to uh, Pandia Restaurant Group, same company that bought. Uh, Boston market. It was having, uh, it was uh, looking at a restructuring uh, um, uh, relatively recently. And um, it is seemingly a victim of, uh, of, of a, uh, you know, a pandemic that has hammered the urban market um, pretty severely. Mm -hmm. And um you know, and that's so it's it's kind of an interesting contrast. And to me, it's sort of indicative of of the, you know, I mean, there's a bit a pretty wide range of concepts that ended up in bankruptcy or well, I mean, again, corner bakery isn't, but they, they've had problems during the pandemic or significant problems. Mm -hmm. You know, and then on one hand, you got your friendlies. And on the other hand, you got plate companies like, you know, corner bakery or or someone that did go bankrupt, like Rubio's and chains like that. Um pretty wide ranging group of companies that have been, been, been affected. Yeah. You know, the corner bakery has always kind of stood out to me as a, an interesting case study per se, even from its beginnings, you know, that was founded by Rich Melman, the mm -hmm. uh, concept developer in Chicago, who's had the Midas touch. And he really had some extra space after developing a, a, another concept 
and he had this little space next door. It was on a corner. He didn't know what to do with it. It had a screen door. And he says, geez, it feels like a neighborhood bakery. So he opened the first corner bakery, which was just a magical concept. I mean, you really felt like you were in another land or you had gone back in time, stepping into some mom and pop bakery with just delicious food and wonderful service. And then if you recall, it was sold to Brinker of all people and they blew it out. Uh, uh, it then ended up in as a sister concept to Il Fornaio, uh, which really was the Panera of its time. Mm -hmm. um, but Corner Bakery, I never quite kind of got it once it became a multi-unit concept. I, I think that there were flaws to that model. Uh, it's the Corner Bakery, but is it really a bakery? Does it feel like a bakery? Uh, operationally, it was extremely confusing. And you put it in a, an urban setting, like the uh, setting across from our Chicago office, where you're pulling from tens of thousands of office workers and those operations really hurt it and yeah then you have its sort of urban orientation so so i i think there's got to be some fundamental reworking of that concept to make it viable um i don't know how it could well it would work in, in a suburban setting because the magic key there the magic bullet there is the drive-through and i i just can't see a drive-through working but something that broad and different where visual cues are just so essential so it's going to have a tough road to hoe, I believe. Um, and I agree with you. Of course, the purchase price wasn't revealed, but I, I can't see it being uh, up there close to what uh, Inspire paid for Duncan. Uh, so, uh, so, so, so we shall see. Um, you know, a lot of these concepts, they, they are tied to a time. And when that time comes and goes, if they haven't they haven't reinvented themselves, then they're really in for a tough, tough time. And uh, the, the consummate example was Howard Johnson way before your time, but but it is still the consummate example. So uh, I, I think that those concepts have a fundamental weakness. It's just brought out that much. It's just amplified that much great more greatly by the, the pandemic and corner base issues that came into play. Um, that urban aspect that you're talking about, you know, I don't know what it's like there in, in Minneapolis where you are, but in New York, we have a lot of really strong local concepts that are very, uh, they have a real loyal, uh, within that city, a real loyal following. And to see those go out is really saddening because they could mm -hmm. be the next big uh, concept. You know, Panera started a St. Louis bread company in, in St. Louis. Uh, it was a promising two-unit operation. Uh, so, but a lot of those folks are going to fall by the wayside for sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the bakery cafe model has been really tough. Uh, the, the urban bakery cafe model has been very, very difficult. I mean, you've had historic companies like Cozy and mm -hmm. and and uh, La Paine Quotidian and, and uh, Corner Bakery. And, you know, they had promise, but they were aimed at at um you know that they were largely aimed at these you know uh business centers and urban districts and you know it's expensive to operate mm -hmm. in those places right. um it is it's you know i mean they i think their menus sometimes really kind of um are complicated to, to operate 
Um, and I think to me, that's one of the geniuses of Panera, which is really the one company in that entire market that really is, has sort of stood out and has been able to really thrive. And the reason why it's done it is because it, it managed to crack the code on, on the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, you know, it, it's, it, it, it managed to, to succeed there. And I don't think many of its bakery cafe rivals have been able to, 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 to do that. And I think corner bakery had, um, uh, you know, certainly, um, you know, these issues going into the pandemic. And then of course the pandemic made some, made things a, a, a lot worse. And then, um, you know, now they're owned by the same operators now Boston market, um, which, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what's happened. Um, uh, you know, what, what, what they end up doing with it. But to me, I mean, if it's going to be a long, you know, you got to be ready for a very long turnaround and then you got to fix, you got to figure out the suburbs because that's where, right. that's where these concepts need to go. Right. Right. And, and uh, given what's going on with the suburbs and the exodus out of the cities, uh, it's not as if they're going to find attractive real estate or real estate uh, much lower, if lower at all than what they faced in a lot of urban markets. So it, it is going to be tough to, to crack for sure. Um I'm very surprised, given that trend for the urban market, that we're not seeing a replacement concept be developed. Something that could cut, that grows, that can just sort of be slid into some of these vacant restaurants that you see in the suburbs. Uh, granted, a lot of those are in locations where the population centers have moved out or the office centers have changed and they've lost their sort of core reason for existing or, or the, the, the real pool for customers. But there's still a lot of good locations out there for brands that, uh, that are viable. Um, so, I, you know, I, I keep waiting to see if, if one, someone, some entrepreneur will come up with an idea that they can just roll across these uh, shuttered units, uh, which is something that used to happen a lot in the hotel industry, that very, very thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned Panera. I, I went to the original St. Louis Bread Company. I was visiting Applebee's and we all piled in a car and we went and drove down to the original uh, St. Louis Bread Company. And it's a far cry from what it is today. I mean, there are a lot of similarities, but the original rationale for that concept, a big part of the um, business model was take home breads, uh, sliced breads and things like that for your dinner table since no one bakes bread anymore. Uh, And a big part of its appeal, even though it didn't do much in the way of breakfast at that time, was eventually to grow into a a concept that would be busy from mid-morning on through to the late hours. Um, And there's still a lot of that, you know, a lot of that did become part of its DNA. But but it's very, very different. And it's a prime example of a, a concept that pivoted with the times, to use the cliche, and constantly reinvented itself. And although now that it's private, we don't know how it's doing, and it probably was affected by the urban dynamics, but by all accounts, it seems to be doing a lot better than certainly those brands that had to throw in the napkin. Right. So you just uh, starting a new video podcast, Executive Summary. Tell us about it. So the notion of that is that uh, we come off a week of big developments and the editors will often 
comment amongst our, ourselves and talk about it in terms of what the significance is for the industry. What does that signal of what's ahead, not only in our coverage, but uh, in terms of what the industry will be talking about, the direction it'll be moving. And a lot of times there's just gold in those conversations. So what we're trying to do is to harness that by every week on Monday, looking at the the or a top development from the prior week that's going to have the industry buzzing the week of our broadcast, the, the, the five days following the, the Monday uh, transmission. And so every week I'm going to talk with uh, a member of our staff and probably have some guest uh, figures as well to talk about the big picture of what's going on in the, the restaurant industry. And the notion is to give restaurant leaders uh, a 20 minute grounding on some trend dynamic or even just a development that has a lot of implications. Now, we got off to an admittedly st slow start because I was stuck interviewing you, but going forward, we plan to reach out to other members of the staff. Yeah, I hear your first guess is like really good and also extremely good looking. Uh, if you believe that, then I have some swampland that would be perfect for a new, um, a brand new friendlies. <laughs> yes, executive summary. Check it out on uh, restaurantbusinessonline.com um, every week. Peter, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Always a pleasure. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive. Please check out our other podcasts in restaurant business, including RB Daily, a brief rundown of the day's news every morning, Menu Feed by Pat Kobe, and Buzzworthy Brands by Heather Lally. A Deeper Dive was edited by Kimberly Kazmarek, artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. You can find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also find these and our other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host and the podcast producer. Thank you for listening. In a world where everything keeps changing, your stores provide delicious, craveable consistency. At the National Restaurant Association Show, you'll find what you need to keep your operations efficient and adapt to new customer expectations. Join us for data-backed industry projections, sessions focused on financial fluency, deep dives into restaurant technology, and more. Save over $60 when you register with code RBDAILY by November 23rd at nationalrestaurantshow.com.